Golazo. Let's go right in. Find a comfortable position. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And for a little while, fill the space of your awareness with the space of your body, with the non-conceptual, non-verbal somatic sensations arising throughout that field, and attend to the rhythm of the breath. In the balancing of earth and sky, that combination of mindfulness of breathing, followed by the shamatha without a sign, this, of course, is the earth, grounding your awareness in a non-conceptual, non-discursive mode.
And let your eyes be at least partially open, evenly rest your awareness in the space in front of you with no object, without doing anything, simply be present, with unwavering awareness, resting in its own place. Now we continue with Padmasambhava's instructions. Occasionally inquire, what is that awareness of the one who is focusing the interest? Let the awareness itself steadily observe itself.
at times. Let your mind come to rest in the center of your heart and evenly leave it there. So commentary. For this phase of the practice, you may find it helpful just for the while to close your eyes and you may have a sense that the locus of your awareness, your perspective, your vantage point, is up in your head. It's certainly very common. But it's just a habit. So now, as if you are stepping into an elevator, It goes down from the level of your head to your heart. Deeply relax, let go of all grasping onto location, any attachment to that space in your head. And see if you can let your awareness go into free fall. Descend right to your heart, the heart chakra in the center of the chest. So it's not a matter of looking at the chest, focusing on the heart, but rather letting the locus of your awareness descend to the heart, be present in the heart. And simply rest there with no object. Sustaining the same quality of awareness as before. Awareness knowing itself and illuminating itself.
At times, even, they focus it in the expanse of the sky and leave it there. So now we come to the culminating phase of the shamatha without a sign. Let your eyes once again be at least partially open. Now once again, of course, it's not a matter of focusing on space as an object, but rather releasing your awareness, releasing your mind into space. Whatever thoughts arise, you don't antidote them, you don't try to cut them off, you let them self-release, dissolving right back into the space from which they arose. This is not just the space in front of you, the space all around. Like having a flock of pigeons, first in a coop, trapped, and then releasing them. And they simply disperse into the sky. Release your mind, release every aspect of your mind, release awareness itself. into this object-less, open expanse of space. Sustain the flow of awareness of awareness, but with no target, no object, nor any subject. Awareness released into space, with no support, and no object. If you find yourself simply spacing out, 
in which the continuum of cognizance fades out, gets dull or nebulous. Or if you find your mind just getting carried away by thoughts in the old habit pattern, then you may come back to the oscillation. As the breath flows out, utterly release the mind with no strings attached, no hold, no grasping. Release the mind into space. And as the breath flows in, accentuate the awareness of awareness within that vast expanse. Accentuate, heighten, intensify your awareness of awareness. Breath flows out, relax, release totally into space. This does not entail a movement of awareness, moving over there and moving back here, but a release of awareness into space and simply an accentuation of the clarity and the cognizance of awareness of its own nature. And as you accustom yourself to the oscillation, sooner or later you may come to a point at which there's no difference. And that is when you utterly release with the outbreath, there's a vivid clarity of luminosity of awareness of awareness. And when you arouse that, there is still a sense of openness, expansiveness a freedom from all grasping, a freedom of all objects, no difference. Where you're simultaneously experiencing the openness, the emptiness of this space, and the luminosity of awareness, the non-duality of emptiness and luminosity.
When that occurs, then dispense with the oscillation and rest right there. You're home. Do nothing. Simply rest in that open awareness. So let's continue, conclude his teachings on shamatha. That is, that does conclude his teaching on the actual methods.
but he does have some concluding comments. Thus, by shifting the gaze in various alternating ways, the mind settles in its natural state. As an indication of this, if awareness remains evenly, lucidly, and steadily wherever it is placed, quiescence or shamatha has arisen. But of course, in our practice, things don't always go as planned. So sometimes we have very good sessions, sometimes not so good. And so then he addresses, well, what happens? What do you do when it's not going so well? You're not you know, following exactly the instructions. And he says, if awareness becomes muddled and unmindful, unmindful means distracted, forgetful, that's the problem of laxity or dimness. So clear it up, inspire it, and shift your gaze. Shifting the gaze may often means to elevate the gaze. If you're falling into laxity, and the word laxity is Jingwen Tibetan, which means to sink, sinking, losing. So you elevate, you uplift, you inspire in various ways. On the other hand, if the problem is not so much laxity and dullness, but rather excitation, he says if it becomes, that is, your mind becomes distracted and excited, it is important that you lower your gaze and release your awareness. So that's really, really core Dzogchen response. Very simple, unelaborated response to what to do when you introspectively note that you're falling into laxity, elevate, refresh, inspire, reinvigorate. And when you find that your attention has been caught up by excitation, rather than following, I think, kind of the modern approach, try harder, you know, bear down. Hey, don't be a flake. Try harder. Try harder. Instead of doing that, which goes, yeah, it works very well for about, you know, three seconds, short time. And then you just burn out. So instead of following that kind of natural response of just trying harder, I have to do it better, do it better, pushing harder. Then he said, well, just relax. Release your awareness. But now he says, if samadhi arises in which there's nothing of which you can say this is meditation, and this is conceptualization, this is the problem of oblivion. And that is that flow of cognizance, right? It's gotten dull. So you can't even recognize. You're, kind of, you're spacing out. You can't, you're not even recognizing when you're really settling in meditative equipoise and when you're just kind of caught up in haze, the conceptual haze, you know, the little swarm of midges. You can't even... What you been doing? I'm not quite sure. You know, that's oblivion, okay? We're not seeking to cultivate oblivion. So meditate with alternating concentration and release and recognize who is meditating. Boy, that one sentence pretty much sums up so much of what he's taught. The whole issue of concentration and release and then probing right in upon the agent, the one who is the meditator, really core. Recognize the flaws of quiescence or shamatha and eliminate them right away. So how do you recognize them? Of course, with introspection. One way or another, call it, call it introspection, call it a facet of mindfulness. But if you're, if you're not even aware when your attention is falling into laxity or excitation, then, of course, you're just going to get falling into a rut. So there's a lovely long commentary here by Gertrude Muche. I invite you to drink it in, or just to drench your mind in it. It's just a beautiful, I must say, of course, he's my lama, but it's also true, my lama, not my lama. This is really a beautiful commentary, uh, so full of life and you know, full of experience and wisdom. Well, I was on... I was on page 
109. Uh, but then there's a long commentary here, really helpful. So I would suggest you read that, and then we'll pick up on page 113. And here's a lovely metaphor. I've often taken this out of context because it's uh, quite illuminating. Flawless quiescence. Quiescence, again, back then I was translating it. Nowadays I just say shamatha. But flawless quiescence or shamatha is like an oil lamp that is unmoved by wind. Ta-da! Okay, <laughs> my little mudra. It's also, I mean, because I don't have a vajra in my hand, and I don't carry one with me all the time. That's the closest I can do. You know. But look at Vajrasattva. That's a Vajra, right at his heart. What's the Vajra symbolize? Pristine awareness. And then what's the bell symbolize? Dhammadhatu. Space. Ultimate space, absolute space. Right? So method and wisdom, method and wisdom. There it is. So the real mudra, when you have some vajra around, then you hold the vajra right there at your heart. That's your unflickering candle flame, your oil lamp. Straight, clear, luminous, self-knowing. And illuminating space. And non-dual from space. So there it is. So shamatha, flawless shamatha, is like an oil lamp that is unmoved by wind when... Wherever the awareness is placed, it is unwaveringly present. Awareness is vividly clear without being sullied by laxity, lethargy, or dimness. Wherever the awareness is directed, it is steady and sharply pointed. Unmoved by adventitious thoughts, it is straight. So he's really highlighting here that the whole point of this is not simply to enter into some blissful, calm, peaceful state, non-conceptual and just saying, whoa, cool, I must be a Dzogchenba. No, you're not. You've got a nice, calm mind. That's good, step in the right direction, right? But what's it good for? Well, then use it. He's going to tell you on the same page. I'm on page 114. He's going to tell you what to do it for, use it for, right? Because now you've achieved shamatha. You're resting right there in your substrate consciousness. You are now, for the time being, you're free of the five obscurations. They're not there. Any of them. Ill will, sensual craving, laxity, dullness, excitation, anxiety, afflictive, afflictive uncertainty. None of them are anywhere in sight. They're all, you put them all to sleep. They're all dormant. They're hibernating. And you're free. Right? So all those obscurations that were veiling, obscuring, the, the luminous, pure, blissful nature, serene nature of your own pristine, of your own substrate consciousness, they're gone. So good. Then you know. Now this is not something you learned in a book or you believe because somebody persuaded you or somebody in a great authority said so. You know this like the taste of chocolate. When it's in your mouth, there's just no question about it. Nobody persuades you. Nobody can unpersuade you. It's nobody else's business. It's yours. But this is closer than chocolate. Chocolate comes and goes. You know. So there it is. So it's ready to be used. Right? That's really that's the point. It's ready to be used. And so you've dispelled through your practice of shamatha. For the time being, nothing irreversible yet. But you've dispelled. You've kind of evaporated away those five obscurations. So that limpid, that no, that lucid clear pool of water that is your substrate consciousness, totally unveiled. 
But there you are, when you're simply resting there in shamat, in meditative equipoise, and what's appearing to you? Not much. And that is just the space of your awareness, the substrate consciousness. But this crucial point, Dujum Lingba brings these out so clearly, that is Padmasambhava by way of Dujum Lingba, the karsa, kunjingo marikba, the very essential nature of the substrate is unawareness. Unawareness. Avidya, which is also ignorance. So when you, are, when you go into deep, dreamless sleep and you're non-lucid, your substrate consciousness kind of enfolds into or melts into, dissipates into the substrate. So you don't explicitly know anything at all. All that's left is the substrate. Manifestly, that's it. And the substrate is unknowing, and that's why when you are in deep sleep, non-lucid, dreamless sleep, you don't know anything at all. Not even that you're asleep. Right? Because it's just substrates left. But now, when you achieve shamatha, of course you're not just immersed in the substrate. That was a phase. You might recall, if you remember the four mindfulnesses. Remember that. The third one was absence of mindfulness. Where temporarily, it's just a kind of a, a, a transit. A transit. Your coarse mind is dissolved. Your awareness is simply immersed into the substrate. And there's just temp tr transitorily or just transiently, just a sheer absence of mindfulness. And then you invert your awareness right in upon itself and you have self-illuminating mindfulness. Good. Now you've achieved shamatha and it's radiant, luminous, bright, crystal clear, cognizant, blissful, and serene. Okay, good, that sounds good. But still, your environment is just the sheer absence of appearances. It's sheer, still the vacuity. And that vacuity still is of the nature of avidya. It's still samritya satya. It's still an obscuring reality. It's kind of reality. It's something that's there. But there, you've kind of come down naked, raw, simple, here's kunzo demba, relative truth, relative reality, that's obscuring something. What's this obscuring? Dhammadhatu. Dhammadhatu. The substrate obscures Dhammadhatu. Just as the substrate consciousness obscures Rikpa. That's why I have to cut through it. So therefore, we have in just a few lines on the same page beginning, Vipassana. Because Vipassana, with Vipassana, you take Manjushi's sword, that sharp, sharp, blazing sword of wisdom, of intelligence. And you cut through appearances. You cut through the grasping, the reification. And most importantly, the reification of your own substrate consciousness. Right. Now that removes an obscuration. Once you've achieved shamatha, and you've had some insight, some direct, some real vision, some view of the emptiness of your own substrate consciousness, then you are right next door to Dzogchen. Then you're ready for pointing out instructions. Or let awareness point itself out. You don't necessarily have to have someone else do it to you. You're so close. But then that's where we're going in the very next transitional phase. Right? So there we are. Actually, it's the next after. So we continue here. So wherever the awareness is directed, it is steady and sharply pointed, unmoved by adventitious thoughts. It is straight. Thus, a 
flawless meditative state arises in one's mind stream, you really now have achieved meditative equipoise. And the Buddha said so many times, the mind that settles in meditative equipoise comes to know reality as it is. Right? And here Padmasambhava says, thus a flawless meditative state arises in one's mind state, and until this happens, it is important that the mind is settled in its natural state. In other words, don't shortchange yourself. Don't stop too short. Don't get a little bit of samadhi and say, ah, oh, this is good enough, let's move on. Until this happens, it's important that the mind is settled in its natural state, and that is carried through to its end. It's exactly what he says in the Vajra Essence and other of these, these extraordinary teachings of Dujum Lingba, Padmasambhava by way of Dujum Lingba, is exactly what Lerap Lingba says, and so on. But here he continues, without genuine shamatha arising in one's mind stream, even if awareness, and that is pristine awareness, is pointed out, it becomes nothing more than an object of intellectual understanding. And that is, when it's actually pointed out, clearly some very meaningful experience may take place, some insight, some revelation may occur. But the mind that this was just poured into is the mind that you brought to the teaching. And that's the one you carry away from the teaching. And the Lama goes that way and you go this way. The Lama's taking his mind with him, or with her, her with her, and you're stuck with yours. <laughs> oh, bummer. <laughs> so you, you get to take home the one that has all the five obscurations and all the reification and all the mental afflictions, and that's, that's your little basket. That's what you're taking home. And so you had a really good experience last Tuesday. But now it's Saturday. And there you are with your mind, and the Lama's a thousand miles away. And what do you have? An object of intellectual understanding. You have a memory of a really very meaningful experience you had before, but you don't have it anymore. So... One is left simply giving lip service to the view, and there is the danger that one may succumb to dogmatism. Again, kind of latching onto just one more form of grasping. We can grasp onto money, we can grasp onto reputation, our physical form, our intelligence, our education, and so forth, and by gum, we can latch onto our, our religion. I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Nyingma, I'm a Golupa, I'm a Dzogchenba. My Lama is, and then say, a really high Lama. That'll show you really got your act together. A really high lama, you know. As many letters before his name as possible. You know, my lama. And then you can just kind of like, you know, hunker down there and identify with that. That's kind of sad, you know, because you've missed the whole point. Thus, the root of all meditative states, the root of all meditative states depends upon this. I don't see any way to interpret that than just what it says. For this reason, do not be introduced to pristine awareness too soon. But practice until there occurs a fine experience of stability. If I, were, I translated this 20 years ago. If I translate it now, I'd say stillness. It's a slight difference, but I say stillness. So do not be introduced. Do not seek out the pointing out instructions to pristine awareness too soon. When your mind is like a grubby little cup with holes in it, cracked and filled with grime, and say, please give me pointing out instructions. You might receive them. But then what are you taking home? 
your grubby, cracked little pot with a really good memory. So continue practicing. Settle your mind in its natural state until a fine experience of stillness occurs. Up to this point, the instructions have concerned the practice of shamatha with and without signs, samaya. So that concludes his discussion of shamatha, and it goes directly from there to vipassana. And we end, of course, in terms of the actual technique in this phase, but now it's a culminating phase, and then there's just nothing more. And then he just says, well, now do that. And that's where you just released your, released your awareness into space. There it is. Right? So... That's it. Now, some of you have noted a, a wonderful point that Gautrudamacha makes in his commentary. I remembered it very, very vividly. I remember him teaching it. Uh, and Guillermo brought this to my attention. Someone else did as well today. Uh, and that is um, this practice in between sessions of maintaining an awareness of space. Uh, I don't think he mentions this uh, in the commentary right here, but I, I remember him so vividly saying it because he, he knew... Um, captured Dujon Rinpoche so well. They were quite close. And what he said is that um, when Dujon Rinpoche was simply out and about, not in formal meditation, but like in going to a mall, going to a mall, just everybody can go to a mall, so can he. He'd go to a mall sometimes. You know, he visited the West quite a number of times. And he said even when he's walking through, mall, through, the mall, through a mall, uh, Gyatron Rinpoche said that Dujon Rinpoche continually maintained his, his awareness was resting in space. That doesn't mean he can't buy anything, because I'm sorry, I'm resting in space, I can't do anything right now. <laughs> you know, I'd really like to buy something, but I'm sorry, I just can't. Not like that. That is, his awareness was always resting in space, and he would do everything that needed, needed to be done. He can get the car, he can go here, buy this, etc., etc., do everything that needs to be done, Awareness always resting in space. So what would that mean? Well, we approach it from the back door. Whenever, as we engage with people, the environment, the situation, or even our own bodies and minds for that matter, but let's say especially as we're engaging with the world around us, whenever some type of mental affliction arises, towards a person, place, thing, whatever it is, whenever a mental, this is going to be a big statement, Whenever a mental affliction arises, it's always riding upon the current of reification. No reification, no mental afflictions. They have no host. You know, it's like bubonic plague with no fleas. Can't get around. You know. And so, what's that feel like? This is not abstract. This is very practical, very experiential. And that is when you lock onto something. So I'm going to imagine, because I, I don't want to focus on any person, I'm going to focus on that chair right in front of me. So let's imagine, so anger. It's silly, I know, but at least I've got a target right in front of me. So imagine anger, aversion, disgust, contempt. And I'm going to, okay, the cipher is the chair. All right? When I do that, and I'm just seeing it now negatively, because I just abhor, I'm disgusted by that chair. When that happens, that which is hosting my aversion, and so forth, the re is the reification. That there's really something in there, and I've got a lock on it. My mind is going to that chair like an arrow striking a target. And it goes thunk into that target, and then, as if the arrow was poisoned, 
it poisons the object. So I see it as something repulsive, disagreeable, disgusting, contemptible, bad, negative, whatever. Right? I see it that way. And of course, what it made it that way? Well, I just hit it with a poisoned arrow. Right? But I'm seeing it existing from its own side. That's how it appears to me. That's how I'm apprehending it. Which means I have no awareness of space in between at all, because it's irrelevant. What the big deal is that chair over there, that awful chair. And then, again, the same thing, but now with fewer words. I'm enamored, infatuated by, I adore that chair, I can't live without that chair, blah, blah, blah. That's the very source of my happiness. Okay? Chair, whatever. Fill in, the, fill in the chair with anything else you like. Same thing. Now I look at the chair and it's just, oh, I can hardly look at it. It just fills my heart with so much bliss. I mean, that, that chair, I mean, just this, oh, it must be an endowed chair. You know. <laughs> you know. And so now I'm seeing it. It's like, don't other people look at the, that chair because you're going to fall in love with it too. So, you know, keep, keep off, that's my chair. You know, because I just assume since it appears so attractive, so desirable, that if anybody else looks at it, they're going to run for it before me because it's intrinsically, I mean, just look at it. <sighs> you know? And so there it is. It's all riding on reification. It happens in dreams. We can become infatuated with someone in a dream. We can loathe and hate someone in a dream. We can be jealous of someone in a dream. We can feel arrogant in a dream. And the same thing happens exactly. And it's just as delusional in the waking state as it is in the dream. Right? But it always entails cutting right through space, hitting the target, reifying it. Almost like we, as if we freeze-dry it. Because whenever there's an object of craving or of hostility, we freeze it. It has a static quality to it, as if it's immutably, inherently, and absolutely desirable. Immutably, inherently, absolutely disgusting. And it's frozen. I take my mind away from it, and then it's the same. I take my mind, same. My mind's moving all over the place, but whenever I get a lock, oh yeah, that. Oh yeah, that person. That, haven't seen him for a year, but yeah, it's the same old schmuck. I'd know that schmuck anywhere. You know, and 365 days have passed by. Never mind, it's the same schmuck, I recognize him. You know, that same chair. You know. And so, see or not, I mean, what I'm saying here, if you just accepted this because I'm saying it, or oh, the Buddha said it, then you miss out on all the fun. Is this true or not? And then you can know, really, you can really, really know with certainty from your own experience whether this is true or not. Is it true? That whenever you experience craving, the mental affliction of craving, hostility, jealousy, arrogance, and so forth, it's always riding on a current of, of reification, grasping onto the inherent existence of the phenomena as if it exists prior to and independent of any conceptual designation. It's already there from its own nature, by its, from, its, from its own side, by its own nature. Is it true or not? You can really check. You know? And the Madhyamaka view, and of course that carries right into Dzogchen. Yeah, this is the way it is. But check it out. If you simply believe it, then you don't get much benefit from it. If you know it, well, that has an impact. You know? But now, in contrast, if, if that's the way it is, now imagine that I'm attending to the chair, but as I'm attending to the chair, I'm really giving a lot of my awareness at the same time. And the chair is in clear focus. I'm not going diddly here, like you know, spacing out like a space cadet. But as I'm attending this space, and, and you can do this right now, you can look in this direction or look anywhere you like here. Look at the tanka. But I'm, I've got the chair right in front of me. 
And as I'm attending to it, as I'm attending to, and eternity, and attending to it, and it's very clearly arising to my visual awareness and my mental awareness, I can at the same time be quite vividly aware of the space in, in between. It's called the barnang, the space that appears in between. It's very clear. And as I attend it in that way, then it's apparent that that appearance is not really out there. Because I know the space is in the space of my mind. I'm not perceiving some space that's independent of my mind. This is the space of my mind. And that appearance is in the space of my mind. Therefore, it's not really absolutely out there at all. It's an appearance in the space of my mind. So how can that appearance possibly give me happiness? That's like looking at you know, an image in a television screen and say, that's going to be the wellspring of my happiness. That's quite a stretch. Or to think, that's what's making me unhappy. And it's an appearance in your own mind. Exactly how sharply are you going to point that finger? When you're aware of the space. So when you're aware of the space and just sustaining that, having the sense, I mean, just, you just see it, that all these appearances are arising in the space, are actually emerging from the space, and then they dissolve back into the space. As you're walking along, you just have the appearances, appearances arising from space, 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 but it's all space. In that context, as you're maintaining that awareness of space, it's going to be a real struggle. Something has to give to maintain that awareness of space and to have attachment, craving, clinging. Something's going to give. Either you're going to lose your awareness of space or that attachment craving is going to have a really hard time getting a hold. Because the awareness of space undermines. It doesn't cure, it doesn't eradicate, but it definitely undermines the tendency for reification. Okay, so maybe that's it. That's my interpretation. But that's what Gautrin Butcher said. So you can try that, maintaining this awareness of space in between sessions. And then, a couple of quotes. I've referred, I think, briefly to a quote from Shandideva. And I thought I'd better just quote it directly. Shandideva will say it better than I can, although this is my translation. Uh, this is in the third chapter of A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. So you recall earlier I cited from the Pali Canon, where the Buddha said, where there's clinging, there's motion, where there's no clinging, there's stillness, and so on. It sounded so, kind of had a Dzogchen taste to it, didn't it? A bit ambience, so, so resonant with. Not the same. I'm not saying in the, that was in the Udana. I'm not saying in the Udana he was teaching Dzogchen. I was saying, what's very clear from my perspective, there was a real resonance there, a real resonance. And now see, I'm going to read just one verse from Shantideva, third chapter, and see if it resonates with anything you've been doing recently. Shantideva. As a result of surrendering everything, there is nirvana. And my mind seeks nirvana. Surrendering everything at once, this is the greatest gift to sentient beings. In this practice, you've already surrendered your body. 
for the moment what we attend to is our reality. But in this practice, you're just not attending to, not objectifying, not striking the target of your body. So for as far as you're concerned, from the, for the time being, from your perspective, body's nowhere in sight. Right? But then there was the mind. That If you're taking the mind as the path and you're observing the thoughts and images, memories, emotions and so forth, okay, you've got, you got an object. But in this practice, you're not even taking the mind as the path. You're not giving any attention to the mind at all. In fact, insofar as the mind comes up, like that. I'm definitely an Apple guy because I'm really thinking of, you know, when you take the things off the dock. Right? If you don't have an Apple, you've got to try it. It's really pretty cool. You just... And it just dissolves into the space of the apple kingdom. That. It's just like that. You know? And so the thought comes up. It just releases itself. And you're just left with that. Like that. You know. I mean, you know it's coming. Like that. So you've given up everything. Everything you're attached to and everything you identified with. You released it all at once. Wow, something really changed in the uh, audio system. <laughs> Maybe the audio system just achieved the great perfection. <laughs> I didn't. Oh, yeah. It's such a better alternative than having old age, sickness, and death gnaw away at you piece by piece. Like leprosy. You had a nice, really good body like Carl's body. Look at Carl's body. I mean, wouldn't you like to have a body like that? I mean, man, that's a body, really. The only problem is he's not going to have it for very long. How many 60-year-olds have you seen with a body like that? Sorry, Carl. It's not a keeper. Boy, he's turned red like a pumpkin. <laughs> but I'm just pointing out, you know, there are women with really beautiful bodies, but I haven't seen any who are 70 years old. You know. And so it just kind of, whatever you have, you know, the strength, the vitality, the, the good looks and so forth, it's like leprosy. You just lose it piece by piece. <laughs> you know? In 10 years, I may very well be wearing a hearing aid. Elizabeth wants me to get one today, but I'm resisting. <laughs> but I'm going to lose my hearing piece by piece, you know? And I've already, you know, I'm blind, I'm illiterate without glasses, unless it's really big print. You know? That's why Tibetan books, big print. They're like, you know, half an inch tall. That's really good when you're 60. 70. Because how many monks do you think a you know, hundred years ago had eyeglasses? And how many want to become illiterate when they get to be 60? So big letters, good idea. You know? And so your wealth, your sensual enjoyments, all that kind of stuff. Lose it bit by bit and every step being painful because you don't want to lose it. You know? Or when you're in the prime, just Cheat death. Just be a tricky little bastard and cheat death. 
and say, you're going you're gonna to bite away at me a little piece by piece. And you're going to make it as uncomfortable and unpleasant all the way as it can be. But I'm smarter than you are. And I'm going to beat you to it. And I'm giving it away all right now. Where's your target? What are you going to eat away now? Doesn't mean harming your body, of course. Doesn't mean harming your mind. Doesn't mean giving away your stuff, like your clothes and so forth. Please don't. Carl, maybe, but you know, most of us, no. <laughs> it doesn't mean giving away your reputation, doing something really stupid, vulgar, and nasty, so people think badly of you. It's not good. No value in that. No, it's just that one thing. You don't have to give everything away piece by piece. Just take the scissors and cut all the strings. Give it all away at once. And what does he say? Surrendering, giving up, releasing into space, everything all at once. What's that? Oh, Nirvana. The great death cheater. And he says, my mind seeks Nirvana. Oh, what a poet. He really was a poet. The Sanskrit is it's incredible. The Tibetan is beautiful. The English is as good as we can do. You know, it's not the same, but we try to get the meaning across. But it's not poetry. His is poetry. The Sanskrit's poetry. The Tibetan's poetry. This is hopefully nice prose. But I just try for accuracy. But my mind seeks nirvana. As we go out and try to get a job, we try to get money, we try to get family, we try to get reputation, try to get, try to get, try to get. What's the mind wanting all along? Freedom. Lasting happiness, serenity, fearlessness, joy, confidence. Isn't it? The mind wants nirvana. It's always wanted nirvana. It's not only human beings either. It's all sentient beings. The mind always wanted nirvana. That's what it always wanted. I think the saddest verse in all of Shantideva, which is not designed to make us sad, but to arouse compassion. It's the one I think, oh, there are a couple of them that I remember extremely clearly, but this is one of them. And it's where he states, while we seek to be free of suffering, free of suffering, we hasten after the very causes And while we wish to find joy, we destroy the causes of our joy as if they were our enemy. If one just holds that vision, not that belief or just the words, but holds that vision, that insight, looking down on anyone, hatred for anyone, no matter what they've done, he vanishes. He vanishes. Out of delusion, we destroy the very causes of our happiness as if they were our enemy, out of delusion. You know. Oh, so very closely related to this. The mind, whoever you are, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, the mind seeks nirvana. So there's the wisdom component. I mean, he packed so much into this one verse. There's the wisdom component right there. 
And then he says, surrendering everything at once, this is the greatest gift to sentient beings. So there's the skillful means component. There's your bodhicitta. Right. There's your compassion. So, so I think the, the relevance to the practice we've just done is perfectly obvious. It's not just releasing attachment to stuff out there. You know, have your wealth, but don't be attached, and all that kind of bit. We've heard that so many times. It's all good. It's good dharma. Right. But he's saying everything. And that's just what we've just done. Releasing it all into space. So this practice of releasing the mind into space. I think I've mentioned that this comes up in some of the teachings of Padmasambhava, the lake-born Vajra manifesting to Dujumlingba. And I pulled out from my translations the two references to it. So I thought that could be helpful. Because it's the same teaching. But a bit different context, right? I mentioned earlier, I'm quite sure, that the way he's teaching it here in the Bhadra Essence and the other text is the enlightened view of Samadabhadra, Gumba, uh, is this kind of placement exam. A placement exam, right at the beginning of the text. Right, right towards the beginning. Before he lays out the path of shamatha and then going into Vipassana and so forth and so on. Before he does any of that, just like bringing your child to a school after you've homeschooled your child for some time, and the school administrators want to know, well, you have a 10-year-old, that's very nice, but where should, we, where should we put her? In the third grade, second grade, fifth grade? If you, you know, how well have you trained your child or educated your child? And so, out of benevolence, not to judge the child, but simply where should we place? So it's not too hard, not too easy. You do a placement exam. So they do that all the time, right? Well, that's what he's doing. We're coming in, we've been homeschooled. <laughs> you know, we've been doing our thing in past life, this lifetime. We've been doing something before we encounter the Vajra essence. Something, which means we've been schooled outside of the school of the Vajra essence. So he says, well, you're coming here? Good, all right. Um, there's a lot you can learn here. That is, this is the whole path to achieving rainbow, rainbow body or enlightenment in one lifetime. But to see where do you fit, what, should be, what, sh- what practice should you take on, then let's do a placement exam. And then you'll know. So you don't go back into stuff that you really don't need to do because you, you really could go right beyond that. But you also don't try to take on practice that you're just not ready for. You know. So, pretty useful. Yeah? This is what he says in the Vajra Essence. So he's just been asked a question about the nature of the path. And the Bhagavan, here is Sogya Dorji, the Lakeborn Vajra, Padmasambhava, he replies to one of these interlocutors in, his, in this pure vision He's surrounded by a host of bodhisattvas who are all emanations of himself. So it's a soliloquy. Uh, he responds, oh, apparition, appar- oh, apparitional display of disciples, listen. So the apparitions of his own mind, pretty cool. Huh? Listen, now it is crucial for you to know your own causal characteristics. There are, two type, there are two kinds of paths. Individuals with supreme faculties proceed within themselves by way of the direct crossing over. I'm going to pause right there. So, individuals of supreme faculties, uh, as he stated earlier, this is obviously I had to take this out of context. He's already given some really core teachings on the essential nature of the mind. Among body, speech, and mind, which is primary, once you've identified the mind is primary, then you ask, good, if the mind really exists, where does it come from? Where is it located? Where does it go? Jung ne do sum, right? And if you're right on top of this, you'll look right into it and say, aha, mind, your mind. You know, that one, 
Where does it come from? If it's real, where does it come from? Anything that's real has to come from someplace. So if you really have a mind, if you really have a sentient being's mind, you know, your mind, if it's really there, good, where did it come from? And if you're really on top of your game, person of superior faculties, you look for where it really came from. And you see, it didn't really come from anywhere. Okay, well, that was a shock. Then where is it located? Where is this, this real mind of yours? You know, the sentient being's mind, the unenlightened mind. Where is it? Well, it's not located anywhere. Okay, but you're still holding on. Okay, I still think I have a real mind. Good, then where does it go? It doesn't stay here forever like, you know, a truck in a garage. Where does it go? And then you look. I mean, your thoughts, images, all the stuff of mind, where do they go? They don't just stagnate, sitting there like pillars. You know, it's all in motion. So where do they go? Oh, they don't go anywhere. Doesn't come from anywhere, isn't located anywhere, doesn't go anywhere, so I do my little thing on the dock in. Oh, no mind. And with that, if you're a simultaneous individual, that's what it's called, synonymous with an individual of superior faculties, you'll hear that, you'll check it out, and you'll get reali- realize Rikpa right there. And you just skip right over Shamadha Vipassana because you've already realized Rikpa and you've stabilized there. You're one of those people who came in with a lot of momentum. So what do you do? You just go directly to direct crossing over. You finish up, uh, finish, finish up the path that you've mostly traversed already. So some people are like that. Okay? No shamatha for them, no vipassana for them, and not even any texture for them, because they hear the teachings and they get it. So, there you are. So that's so that, so, such people. That's people of individual. So people of superior faculties, supreme faculties, proceed within themselves by way of the direct crossing over, Direct crossing over to spontaneous actualization, culminating phase of Dzogchen practice. And then he continues, and individuals with middling or inferior faculties proceed gradually, independence upon the grounds and paths, the Bodhisattva Bhumis, the five paths. So he says, well, okay, there's the general framework. You, as we put you in this placement exam, you can be superior, middling, or inferior. But now you need to know which. To investigate this, he says, first of all, merge your mind with empty external space, in other words, not inside your head. <gasps> no boundary, right? Outside of yourself. Not inside yourself. Not a little space. External space. Big space. Open space. Boundless space. Unimpeded space. <sighs> like that. Merge your mind with empty external space and remain in edita- meditative equipoise for 20 days. You have a 20-day placement exam. And that was the instruction. So just do that. Nothing more. That's it. See how that works out? Okay. By so doing, individuals of the first type, and that is people of medium faculties, will perceive the originally pure essential nature of the primordial ground, and that is the indivisibility of Dharmadhatu and primordial consciousness. They'll perceive that with the eye of wisdom, prajna. And they will, identify within, they will identify this within themselves. Hmm. So then good. Then in, not immediately, but 
you know, over a period of 20 days, you realize Rikpa, then you carry on. Then you go right into direct crossing over. I'm perplexed here. I'm going to have to check my translation. Individuals of the latter two types will be tormented by confusion and distress. And sin- uh, I'm going to have to check that. Uh, this is probably taken from earlier, um, earlier translation. What he's referring to here is people of, of inferior faculties. If you're middle, medium, medium faculties, then great. You've just passed that 20-day exam, and you're off. So this, I have to check this. I'm sorry. I should have checked this earlier. But somebody is tormented by confusion and distress, and since their minds do not seem to merge with space, they will pass the time in fabrications and striving while becoming caught up in many thoughts. Here is the way for them to enter upon the grounds and paths. They should practice by abiding in consciousness and recognizing the movements of thoughts as follows. Well, that is. It's a, it's a typo or something, but I think it's an earlier version of my translation. Uh, he's referring to pers- people of inferior faculties. Superior don't even need to do the 20-day exam. Middling take the 20-day exam and they pass it. They realize Rigpa. And people who just, as he just said, confusion, distraction, restless, mind wandering all over the place, and so forth, okay, don't be unhappy. You're, you're in a large class. <laughs> you have a lot of company. <laughs> you know? And this means then you take it step by step. And where do you start? You start with shamatha. And so how does he describe that? They should practice by abiding in consciousness. There we go, right? Abiding in consciousness. And recognizing the movements of thoughts as follows. There you are. You're resting in stillness, observing the comings and goings of thoughts. Like people watching a show of optical illusions. By meditating diligently with keen enthusiasm, all the subtle and coarse assemblies of thoughts will be calmed in the ocean of the primordial ground, they will abide in a state of unwavering stillness, and there will arise the experience of shamatha. At this time, there will arise bliss like the warmth of a fire, luminosity like the breaking of dawn, and non-conceptuality like an ocean unmoved by waves. So that's it. Okay, that's for people of inferior faculties. Then you'd go for shamatha. You take the mind as a path, until all those thoughts have dissolved into the substrate, all that's left of your mind is the substrate consciousness, and that's your graduation ceremony. When you come to the culmination of the past, bliss like the warmth of a fire, luminosity like the breaking of the dawn, non-conceptuality like an ocean unmoved by waves. And congratulations, you've now just finished elementary school. Right? So that's that. So that's, that was the contextualization of merging mind with space. Which points out, well, then right there, that merging mind with space, clearly, if he's saying do that for 20 days, clearly that is a textured practice. Because he's not giving you something to do for 20 days and saying you might realize Rikpa. Oh, but by the way, that's not textured. That's what texture is for, to realize Rikpa. Right. And so that, that practice of just releasing your mind into space, there, I don't know how you can miss that interpretation. That can be a Dzogchen practice. But now we move to this other text. Short, short passage. Well, fairly short. This is the Kundazamba Gombo, the Enlightened View of Samantabhadra. I've mentioned earlier that the Vajra Essence, it's about 400 pages long in English translation. It makes a brief reference to the preliminary practices in about one line, and then goes to Shamatha elaborately. I commented on that in Stilling the Mind, my book. And then Vipassana, quite some detail. And then proceeds on state regeneration, completion, a lot of detail. And then Tekchut and Tutkel, the cutting through, the direct crossing over, 
describes rainbow body, and then he gets to the six bardos, is finally you know, the addendum. Um, and I mentioned before that as I just immerse my mind in that, receive the teaching, the transmission, meditate on it, translated, polished, 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 translated, published, all the books sold out, and then a lot more publishing, and a lot more refining of the earlier translation, which I've been doing over the last couple of years. Uh, then, but in the first reading, it just struck me that in the text, it just seemed like there were out of this whole array of practices, he teaches a lot of them, that the four that seem to be clearly indispensable are Shamadha, Vipassana, Tekshut, and Tutka. And then, years ago, when I was teaching in Wales, then I had my computer with me, and I have all the collected works of Dujo Lingma on my computer. And so I went back to that same volume, because I'd remembered vaguely that the, the volume didn't end at the end of the Vajra Essence. There was something that followed it. So I said, well, I wonder what that is. And I was at that time actually teaching the Shamatha section of the Vajra Essence to a small group of people in Wales. But then in between sessions, I said, well, what was next? And it was this text, The Enlightened View of Samadhavadra, only 80 pages long, and highlighting only four methods, Shamatha, Vipassana, Tekshut, and Tutkel, and saying, that's it. That's what's indispensable. If you do that, that will take you to enlightenment in this lifetime. So then that was kind of a nice affirmation that what it, I, there was nothing brilliant about it. It was just kind of reading carefully and seeing what is clearly stated as being absolutely indispensable. I mean, anybody can read that. But it was kind of nice to see that I had read it correctly, that there in the enlightened view of Samadhabhadra, he highlights only four questions. Doesn't, doesn't go into state regeneration or completion. Uh, and he does present that as a complete path in 80 pages, which is pretty astonishing. But as we'll see here, so this is like a condensed version of the Vajra essence, but now instead of 400 pages, down to 80. And once again, towards the beginning of this text, here again, it's the same speaker. It's another vision, this Gnostic vision. And once again, Padma Zabhava is teaching, again surrounded by disciples, and Dujum Lingba is there, taking it all in, writing it down, and presenting it later. Right? So here it is, right towards the beginning of this text. Same teacher. Uh, I think it was shortly after the teaching, maybe a year or two after he received the Vajra essence. So here's what Padma Zabhava says here. There are two kinds of paths. Individuals with supreme faculties proceed within themselves by way of the direct crossing over, and individuals with middling or inferior faculties proceed gradually independence upon the grounds and paths. You've heard that before. To investigate this, first of all, merge your mind with empty external space. Did I just... Yeah, it, it, the last one did... should have said 21 days. One says 21, one says 20. Son of a gun, they both say 20. Okay. I thought said one said 21 and one the other said 20. Okay, that's no big deal, but we're seeing covering the same ground. So, by so doing, the first type of individual perceive the originally pure, essential nature of the primordial ground. No, this is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake here. I don't know how that happened. Because um, this is simply the same. Because I know actually one says 20 days, one says 21 days. And I was just in a hurry to get this on my cell phone. So I'm going to read you the, um, the passage, the corresponding passage from the Enlightened View of Samadhabhadra. I'll read that to you on Monday. I just copied it wrong. And I meant to check that earlier part. It kind of, that was weird. Typo. So, that's that. Um, yeah, I'm not going to talk about the other passage because it, it, it better for it to speak for itself. Uh, nothing radically new, but it is, it, it is interesting. It's a little bit different. Um, I'll just say this much, a little sneak preview. In the Enlightened View of Samadhabhadra, 
says the same, he says essentially the same thing. He does say 21 days instead of 20. So I just I basically copy the same passage. Uh, my, my, my mistake. Um, but he breaks, he, he says 21 days, and he breaks it down into three, three weeks. And for the first, and then he says, now focus on this, and then focus on this, and focus on this. And these are shamatha techniques. It's really, really clear they're shamatha techniques. Two out of three are just nothing other than shamatha techniques. And then one of them is merging mind with space. So you see by its context, well, he's presenting this as a shamatha technique, because the other two are shamatha techniques. Why wouldn't this be one, right? But he says the same thing. Within 21 days, for those people of middling faculties, they will then realize rikpa. In which case, then you can skip shamatha vipassana. If you've really deeply realized rikpa and you're dwelling there, well, then you came with enormous momentum prior to that practice, and then you simply carry on, and you move from there into the direct crossing over, and you carry on. I'll just mention this, that in Dujum Lingma made some, Dujum Lingma Padmasambhava, it was in the Vajra essence, it's there instilling the mind, but it's quite moving. When he refers to people encountering the teachings there in the Vajra essence, he said, you will not encounter these teachings unless you have a vast momentum, vast store of engagement with Dharma in past lives. A lot. Shravakayana, Bodhisattvayana. You will have had a lot of immersion already in order to actually encounter these teachings. They won't come out of the blue. You'll not be right. You're not going to encounter them. And so if you do encounter them, and you really encounter them, you're not just kind of whipping through, that was interesting, and go on to the next book and put that in your library. If you actually encounter them, then you can draw a clear inference from what he says, is you're bringing a lot of momentum to this already. Now, I know for myself, it's very easy to be intimidated by the very, very profound teachings, the most esoteric, you can say, the Dzogchen Vajrayana in general, and then Dzogchen, the pinnacle, the ninth yana, and when one looks at one's own mind and think, okay, this is the mind I'm bringing and there are the teachings, you say, this is a total mismatch. You know, this has to be for people that really, I mean, they're really way up there, and I'm not. Uh, maybe I should just spend the rest of my life just doing mindfulness of breathing and trying to be good. You know, that would be a good start anyway. And so it's just very easy to, um, what's the word? Talk yourself out of it, scare yourself out of it. Uh, just feeling, you know, just basically, I, I'm kind of intimidated by it. It's just so profound. I, I, I don't think I'm up to that. You know? And then Padmasambhava says, look, if you're encountering these teachings, you are bringing a lot of momentum with you, a lot. And if upon encountering the teachings, you find that faith arises, aspiration arises, yearning arises. You would really love to engage in the practices. Not because they're high, they're esoteric, they're the highest and blah, 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 but just you're reading the teachings and you're just, your heart is drawn to it. You really just would love to engage in that practice. He said, if you have that faith, that yearning, that aspiration, then that's all you need to know. And then you're ready. Go for it. That's what he says. And he said, if you're not ready, could if Dzogchen teachings are being given in a room, or your roommate is listening to them from a speaker on, from the podcast, and you're not ready to receive the teachings, you just don't have, you don't have maturity, you're not ripe, you're just, you're just not ready for these teachings, right? 
Then he said, your body can be in the same place where the teachings are being given, and your mind will be miles away. It's called rangsang. They, they, they hide themselves. They hide themselves. If you're not ready for them, the words will come, and they'll kind of like bounce off your ear. Come to your mind, bounce off your mind. And afterwards you say, what were those Dzogchen teachings about? I don't know. I heard one person say, kind of woolly thinking as far as I can tell. You know? That's fine. It's no problem. That's what he heard. So I, I'm not speaking with sarcasm. Like, oh, what a dope. I'm not doing that at all. That's what he heard. That's just being honest. What I heard was a lot of woolly thinking. Okay. That's what you heard. When I hear Shostakovich, I don't hear music. That doesn't mean it's bad music. That doesn't mean it's... I don't have the musical ripeness to hear Shostakovich. I can't even pronounce his name. <laughs> you know? Or I visit the Museum of Modern Art in Glasgow. It looked like a garbage dump to me. Like this is where they left a bunch of crap that nobody else wanted. And some of it put on the walls to get it out of the way. Is this a condemnation of the Museum of Modern Art in Glasgow? No, it's not. It's just that my mind was miles away, you know. So there it is. And you all know, you know, when I drink wine, whether it's a $50 bottle of wine or a $500 bottle of wine, which nobody's ever given me, uh, it's sour grape juice. That's it. It's sour grape juice. Expensive sour grape juice, but, you know, they just, if they just gotten it into the cup before it went rotten, it would be much, much better. I mean, grape juice tastes really good. But that spoiled, you know, what's it called? I mean, you know, it got rotten. So is this, does this mean that wine is terrible, that it tastes bad? No, it's just that I'm, I don't have the ripeness, I don't have the palate. That's it. So, wine, musical art, and Shostakovich, I'm not there. <laughs> My life is so impoverished. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and some people in the same way, in the Dzogchen teachings come, and they say, but this doesn't make any sense. And maybe it's Dingo Kenzirambaji teaching, or it's only Dalai Lama teaching, whoever. No, that's kind of woolly thinking. No, that's fine. So the teachings protect themselves. They, they secrete themselves. So engage where you feel you're really getting benefit. It makes sense. You love it. You want to engage in it. You want to devote your life to it. That, that dharma. That dharma. That's best. So this is why it really, so Morgan and others who attended, and uh, Patrice and so forth, those of us who attended, and Amy attended the uh, Gandhan Tukarumish's teachings. I'd never heard it phrased that way. It was so endearing when he, he gave his concluding talk after he'd spent kind of the whole day. It was kind of like we, we really squeezed him. You know, he was only there for two days. He gave one full teaching, amazing teachings, right? The next day, he's up there early in the morning giving this long empowerment. Went on and on and on. And then he had a little bit of break. And then he's coming back in the evening. You know, and gave two hours. Quite extraordinary talk on the nine yanas and the role of Dzogchen, how it fits into the nine yanas, starting with Shravakayana and so forth. And you read almost any presentation of this. This is the classic framework, the whole bandwidth of Dharma within the Nyingma view and the Nyingma classification, right? Nine yanas. And you know the Shravakayana is down there at the bottom of the heap. Well, that's good. It's Four Noble Truths. But, you know, it's really basic. And then there's Pratyeka Buddha and Bodhisattva and Kriya Tantra, Jariya Tantra, Yoga Tantra. And on it goes, you know, Maha Yoga... Anu yoga, ati yoga, 
there it is. And just, it's like looking up at a, at a skyscraper, like, whoa, and there's the, the pearl on top, and there's the great perfection. And it's the mind, it's the, it's the mind, it's the mind class, the expanse class, the pith instruction class. Within the pith instruction class, there's the outer inner secret and ultra secret. Like, That ultra-secret of the pith instructions, that's the Vajra essence. So it's generally presented that way. You know? As I just described it, that's just the classic way of presenting it. And Gandhi Dugo Rinpoche, who has been profoundly trained by some of the greatest masters of the latter part of the 20th century, said, in terms of that whole hierarchical model, you remember what he said? I don't like that. <laughs> Isn't it pretty much a direct quote? I don't like that. I like it more like the nine yonas are like a piece of cake, or like a cake. And some people like this wedge, and some people like this wedge, and some people like this wedge. It doesn't mean that's a better wedge. That's the one you like. So if you, what you like is the shravakayana, that's not lower. That's the, that's the wedge for you. And that's the one you're going to get the best benefit from. So why should you regard that as inferior to something from which you would not get as much benefit? And some will be the bodhisattva yana, and some other, others will be maha yoga, other ones ati yoga, and so forth. But you go for the wedge that speaks to your soul, to your heart, to your mind, to your Buddha nature. You say, I like that better. They're all wedges of the same piece of cake. Namo. So beautiful. So now we have whole day, no obligations, empty, wide open day. So merge your mind with space and then bring it back on Monday morning. <laughs> Don't lose it. <laughs> Enjoy your weekend. See you Monday morning.